Okay, thank you very much. So, yeah, today I won't be talking about bad viruses or Zika viruses, but I'm very happy to you know, answer some of your questions in the end. So today is mostly about HIV, right? So, um, so I'm going to try to give you an overview of what we know, what we, uh, and when, sort of a timeline, and um, obviously it's going to be most focused on, on this work that we had um, in late 2014 about the origins of HIV. Um, so what do we know really about HIV? So we know that the first confirmed um, viral sequences, uh, so the first genomes, actually partial genomes of HIV, uh, were recovered from uh, two patients. Uh, one patient was in 1959 in Kinshasa, and the other patient um, was in 1960, also in Kinshasa. So the two very earlier samples, or earliest samples of HIV, come from the same um, the same location, so the capital of the DRC, and they're very old. They're also very different from each other. So it's not that, um, as you will see, HIV is very diverse, and these sequences fall in completely different parts of the phylogeny of HIV, one indicating that there has been sort of an extensive diversity uh, of HIV-1 uh, if we compare these two uh, sequences sampled only one year apart. And one of the hypotheses that had been put forward with the second paper where the sequence was published in 2008 uh, is that, well, urbanization really, so, and the, 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 the high number of people living in Kinshasa uh, compared to all the, uh, the number of people living in all cent big Central African cities um, was probably the, uh, the reason why really um, the virus took off in Kinshasa, in the, in the capital of the DRC, and not in any other Central African um, city. So, um, what do we know? Like, um, in the 80s, however, in 1981, we have the first report describing a few patients of, um, infected with uh, a strange disease in LA, California. Uh, these patients uh, were then retrospectively, uh, retrospectively identified as having uh, been infected with HIV-1 subtype B. I will just tell you in a minute what that is. And then two years later, right, the virus was first isolated and characterized by Francois Bagasinozzi, which gave her and her team, Luc Montagnier in Paris, and that gave them later on, uh, many, many years later, actually, uh, the Nobel Prize. One year later, however, um, the virus was found in very, very high prevalence in not only in, in what was known as Zara, uh, formerly known as Zara, currently DRC, but also in Uganda, um, in Rwanda, and Uganda later on, actually. So in 1984, the virus was widespread as well in not only MSM, which we call manual of sex with man populations in LA, for example, or in Paris, but also in heterosexual populations in Central Africa, Central and East Africa. We also know today uh, that around 75 million people got infected already with HIV, um, and 35 of them roughly are still uh, living with HIV. Uh, most of this burden is actually in Sub-Saharan Africa, where nearly 71% of these uh, people infected with HIV still live. Um, and, but still the numbers are, are quite high in other places and there is an increasing number of people being infected in, East, in, 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 in Russia and East Asia, in East Europe as well um, and so there's still a lot of work to do to actually eliminate 
HIV, which is actually uh, one of the goals of UNAIDS, United Nations for AIDS, is to eliminate HIV uh, until 2030. So that's 14 years to do that, and there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, as I mentioned, uh, HIV diversity is quite high uh, throughout the world, and what I mean by this is that HIV can be divided in several different subtypes, which we call actually phylogenetic lineages. Um, and that diversity is quite high throughout the world. It's very heterogeneous, really. Uh, but the highest number of different, let's say, genetic forms or lineages, uh, F, G, H, K, and so on and so forth, can be found in these areas. So the Congo, which we, what we call sort of the Congo River Basin in Central Africa. For example, in contrast, uh, the epidemiology of HIV infections in uh, North America is mostly dominated by subtype B. Uh, also in Europe, in big part of Europe, with a few exceptions, actually Portugal is one of those exceptions, uh, where subtype G is also very present, and I will tell you about that in the very uh, last slides of the presentation. Um, and then, well, you know, subtype B also in Australia, and then there's a lot of other different communities worldwide. Um, but really, the question here was to how to take into account evolution, right? Uh, to study the ignition, the establishment, and the spread of the pandemic, which are the three main um, uh, things that I'm uh, particularly interested in. And the basic underlying concept is that HIV evolves really quickly, grows really, really fast. Actually, it evolves around one million times faster than human DNA. So that means that in every year that one single individual is infected, we expect at least 10 mutations in viral genomes to occur. So viral genomes, you just imagine like a string of A, T, C, and G, so nucleotides, uh, in this case 10,000 nucleotides, and just imagine that every year there's not one single virus in an infected person. In fact, there's like millions and billions of viruses in the acute phase. So every time there is a generation, there's a round of replication of the virus or multiplication of the virus, there's incorporation of new mutations in the viral population in an infected individual. Um, so there's a very short generation time, which means that every cell that gets infected with HIV uh, can produce new variants or new, new viral particles within a matter of two to three days. Um, and there's a very error-prone machinery. So the, the process of replication or multiplication of viruses within the infected host is very error-prone. Uh, in humans, we have some systems to correct that, or in mammals in general, but in viruses, they do lack this sort of... A, um, uh, error, well, it's very error-prone So how does this work? Well, the virus, which is sort of a spherical, has a spherical shape of around a few uh, 40 nanometers uh, in diameter, so the virus uh, uses these external proteins at the surface, which we call the glycoprotein, GP120 and GP41. So it uses these external proteins, right? This is in 3D, so this is just imagine that it's like this sphere uh, with all these external proteins, and then this sphere actually binds what we call the receptor CD4. So it's mostly, um, most HIV infects, infects uh, CD4 lymphocytes because lymphocytes, well, CD4 lymphocytes have this receptor which is needed for a viral entry. And then the, the virus then binds this co-receptor, which is this chemokine receptor. Some of you might have heard about this, it's the CCR5 co-receptor. Um, and then there's like a fusion of the virus in the, main, in the membrane of the cell. So the virus sort of expels its genetic material with a bunch of accessory proteins. 
uh, into the cell and there is this process. This is the RNA, there's two RNA uh, strains. The RNA will be um, very similar. So again, a string of 10,000 nucleotides, A, T, C, and G, so on. Each of these three nucleotides will codify a different amino acid, and then in total that will generate the different proteins. Um, so there is this reverse transcription step where the RNA is converted into DNA, and it's in this process that there's a lot of mistakes incorporated, and that's why we say it's like this, there's a specific enzyme, uh, RNA polymerase, that uh, introduces a lot of errors in this process. So once it's converted into DNA, the virus can then, the proviral DNA can then be imported into the nucleus of lymphocyte cells, human cells, integrate into the viral genome, and then be um, well, replicated, replicated until the cell gets literally exhausted. Um, then the virus, well, the, there's a translation of proteins. The proteins, uh, each of these proteins is then uh, processed and assembled, and then there's a formation of new variant. And then, uh, so this happens at a really high rate, and per day, 10 to the 9 viral particles are produced this way. Um, well, to add on top of this, there is viral recombination. Some people call viral recombination the equivalent of viral sex. And that's because, literally, so if one cell um, is infected by a virus of a specific subtype or specific lineage, and then if that same cell becomes infected with a subtype from a different lineage, uh, throughout this process, and when the proviral DNA of lineage A, let's say, gets uh, into the same nucleus as the proviral DNA of lineage B, there is a shift and they literally produce a new, what we call recombinant, uh, a new complex mosaic viruses with pieces from A and pieces from B, and then that generates additional diversity, and that is uh, leading to complications in terms of treatment, and so on and so forth. And uh, finally, the selective pressure. So this happens really quickly because the immune system is continuously targeting these viral proteins and uh, to try to avoid that the virus binds into the host cells. And it's continuously like producing antibodies to target these regions while the virus needs to continuously um, mutate to not to be recognized by these antibodies. So we call this sort of arms race. So all of this contributes to a really high diversity at HIV within host, but not just within host, and, and also at the inter-host level. So, now a little bit more about the origins really of HIV uh, uh, once again. And I will take you through sort of a, a timeline of uh, findings really, because the work that we have done had built in the shoulders of <coughs> previous work, so it wouldn't be really fair to uh, and I think it's quite important anyway. So, so we know that AIDS is a zoonosis, meaning it's a product of a cross-species transmission. So the uh, event, so we know the reservoir species actually of HIV viruses, uh, and we know that it's not there's not just one reservoir species of AIDS virus. There's uh, there's quite a few, and we also know that these reservoir species, um, which in this case is chimpanzees gorillas and sedimentum-based monkeys, they actually have SIV viruses, simian immunodeficiency viruses, very close to HIV for over three, well, 30,000 uh, years, for over 30,000. So these viruses circulate in non-human primate populations for a really long time. And actually only recently, they jumped uh, into humans and caused what we know today as different HIV groups. So 
the, it's a bit different from lineages that I was talking about because each group, and this is only for HIV one, there's also HIV two. So each group, in this in this case represented by different colors, represents a cross species transmission event from SIV, which are in black, so these are SIV viruses, uh, to humans. So each of these transmissions, from uh, in this case, for example, group N, only around 12 infections of group N have been found in Cameroon, and this group N uh, comes from uh, chimpanzees and jumped to humans. Group O, very recently, uh, and group P, so two distinct groups have been found, uh, well, these are mostly, group P has only been found in two patients from Cameroon, really, and was discovered in 2009. Group O causes around 10,000 uh, infections, also in Central Africa. Sorry. Um, Subtype B is missing there. So yeah, that's the, to it. yeah. So that's the thing because um, yeah. So that's that's the, that's the, that's the reason why I'm saying it's a bit different because the HIV group is the product of a cross species transmission from SIV to humans, right? So and then so we have four HIV one groups, uh, but the biggest one uh, that causes 99% of infection worldwide that's group M. So M stands for major. Uh, o was the second one, with, that's why it was called O, it's an outlier, and then N, which stands for non M and non O, and very recently the group P was found. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so the, 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 the group M then further subdivides in different lineages, which are not shown here, and one of those lineages is subdivided. Okay. So, well, we know that all of these viruses jumped uh, possibly as a result of hunting and handling bushmeat, and that this happens um, is still part of uh, uh, some cultures in Central Africa and in West Africa. And in some cases, petting, uh, petting on human primates might also result in cross-species transmission. Uh, and this, this, this hasn't really stopped throughout uh, the last years as well. And I, I'm, so this is a picture taken from a friend of mine, actually, who's working in the Republic of Congo with uh, bushmeat hunters, really. Uh, so, uh, this is just one of the pictures, but there's a lot of different uh, evidence that uh, cross-species transmission is, might still be an issue since uh, obviously there is still a lot of bushmeat hunting happening in some parts of Central Africa. So, in total, the ones I've mentioned to you is four different cross-species transmission events, which led to group N, uh, group N, O, and group B, but there's also HIV2, right? There's nine different HIV2 groups. So there's four different uh, HIV-1 groups. So in total, there's evidence for 13 different cross-species transmission events from non-human primates to humans. Um, so yeah, so that's 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 on the umbrella title that AIDS is a zoonosis, and it's not just one. There's 13 different zoonoses. Um, well, the, the second thing um, that we also know since around the year 2000, when viruses started to, to, to be sequenced, really. Um, is that Kinshasa, the capital again of the DRC, but also other parts of the DRC, like Bomanda and Bujimai, Bomanda is in the north, Bujimai is in the south, this mining area in the south, Bujimai, so in the Katanga region. So we know that uh, the diversity of HIV viruses in these locations is extremely high, since already the year 2000. So each of these lineages, for example, uh, corresponds to different subtypes, subtype B, C, F1, Okay, sometimes subtypes subdivide themselves and can be subdivided into sub subtypes. For example, um, F1, F, F2, 
2. Sometimes A can be further divided into A1, A2, A3, A4, and the diversity is continuously increasing in fast. And the ones that I was mentioning to you about the recombination, the ones that I was mentioning are, uh, this is a CRF, which means circulating recombinant form. Uh, and in this case, they are named by their um, order sort of identification. This, this is CRF01, AE, which is the product of the recombination between subtype A and subtype E. I was the first one to be identified. This is CRF02. AG, so the product of A and G, right? So it's a mosaic genome, and there's actually 76 CRFs. And the CRF to be classified as a CRF needs to be found in three different epidemiologically unrelated individuals. So the increase, there's an increasing number of CRFs throughout the world, and the diversity uh, of uh, uh, subtypes in Central Africa is extremely high, particularly in Kinshasa, Bujimbang, and uh, Romanda. So, 2001, uh, the first paper dating the ancestor of HIV-1 was published by Beth Gruber in the Animals database in the US. Um, and what they did was they picked a lot of sequences throughout the world. And so each of these, this is, this is a phylogeny again, but it's not rooted. So there's no root here, right? So each of these corresponds to a different subtype again. And then they found, okay, so, and each of these branches equates to, in this scale, is uh, genetic uh, distance. Genetic distance meaning number of nucleotide mutations or substitutions um, across the different pairwise differences across all the different isolates. And each of the tips of these trees corresponds to different bars sampled from different individuals. Right? So they measure the genetic distance uh, of all pairwise genetic distances for all these isolates, and they pick as in the center of these distances, that's what we call consensus. And then they artificially sort of introduce a routing method. All right, so this is the average, let's say, the average diversity of all viruses. So this must be somehow the root of the tree. There were no, not very precise routing methods at this time. And this is the early sequence that I was telling you about in the first slide. So this is a sequence from 1959, so which belongs very closely related with subtype D and subtype B as well. So based on this, right, what did, what did they try? They tried to find a very innovative way to date this phylogeny. And the way they did this, actually, so they knew uh, when exactly in the year, like where each of these isolates was collected. So let's say this one is in 1959, for sure. So for example, these ones with shorter branches could have been around 1985, 86, 87, 2000, until the year 2000, because this was published in 2001. And they simply measure the genetic distance of these isolates with um, dated tips up until the consensus sequence. So they do that, and that's what this plot is showing. So each of these corresponds to a different sequence, sampled between 1980 and 2000. And since there is a measurable accumulation of substitutions over time, so the virus is continuously evolving, uh, they were able to, uh, using a simple linear regression method, they were able to estimate that the diversity or the branch length of all these sequences up until uh, distance zero, which corresponds then to the consensus sequence, uh, was around uh, 1931, and so in intervals 1915, 1941. Um, they also do this with, the, with and without 
So the Zyra 59, which is this sequence here, it's called Zyra 59. So they also do this uh, with the Zyra 59, and they see that, well, the Zyra 59 sequence is not really, um, it fits within the expectations. Because if the Zyra 59 sequence could be, for example, contaminant, you wouldn't expect it to fit within sort of this uh, linear regression line so nicely. Um, well, fourth, fourth, um, so fourth, fourth thing on the origins of HIV pandemic. Well, probably a lot of you has heard about the oral polio vaccine theory, right? Um, yeah, so the oral OPV theory uh, was a very, very, it's a very long story. Uh, but there was this book uh, published in 2001 by Edward Cooper. Uh, I'm not sure how much you want me to go into detail on this, but uh, it's, you know, it's speculation, there was this book, and he was actually a journalist, he was involved in the original description, and he was involved in the original paper in 2000, um, 2001, describing the 1959 sequence. So he did a lot of epidemiological work, his work was uh, epidemiological, epidemiologically speaking, was interesting work, but he had no background whatsoever in genetics and, and, and uh, and he, ne he had really never, he never had a formal background in, uh, in science, really. Uh, but he was working for BBC, so he was sent to the DRC, he was doing a lot of research there, and he wrote this book called The River. So The River is like this massive book, uh, very interesting from a, a historical perspective, has some interesting data. But it also has a lot of mistakes there, in which one of them is that he, what he describes is that HIV-1 was the result of a contaminated vaccine that was um, performed uh, in, uh, in a lab located somewhere <coughs> in the northeast, next, not too far from Kisangani really, uh, which is the biggest city in the north of the DRC. So someone at the lab here around 1959 um, and then that group made like a, this uh, three, uh, three million different vaccines that were administrated in a lot of parts of the DRC. Uh, and what he claimed was that there was some evidence that these vaccines were actually contaminated with uh, SIV from chimpanzees that were actually collected in the vicinity of this campus. Campus was called Campus Lindy, where they did this vaccine. So it turns out that two people from zoology, uh, from, from my department, were actually, actually went there to try to come to ND and try to find these chimps whose uh, kidney cells had been used to produce these vaccines. Um, one of them was Mike Morby, and the other, the other was his supervisor. So his supervisor actually died from malaria from this trip. He got very ill. Uh, that was 2001. He went back, Mike Morby went back again in 2004. Uh, and they managed to actually sample, um, uh, they managed to collect samples from the north part uh, of the DRC from different, from different SIV, from different uh, non-human primates. And what they found was quite interesting. First, they found that this, the, the chimpanzee species circulating in the northeast of the DRC is not the same as the one that has uh, the SIV closest to HIV-1 group M. So it's actually quite different. Um, it's quite a, quite different chimpanzee species. There's four different subspecies, and the subspecies not the same. Uh, and they didn't find any evidence. And actually, they wrote a paper really entitled "Oral Polio Vaccine Refuted." It was in 2004. Uh, obviously, Edward, uh, Edward Hooper was like, 
went ballistic and there's like this blog online where you can still track this movement. It's very popular among the, the denialists, for example, which is another movement that has a lot of uh, impact in less informed populations, unfortunately. So this is the river, uh, that's the book. Um, anyway, why another reason why obviously Edward Cooper's theory wasn't very decent in explaining all these diversity viruses is that it could potentially explain, if his theory were correct, we would expect to find one single common ancestor of the virus in 1959. And then that's not what we find. And instead, the sequences from 1959 and 1960 are very, very, very different. Anyway, we don't not only have group M, which is the HIV main group, but as I mentioned before, we have HIV group N, group O, group B, and many other cross-species transmission events for HIV2. So it's not an isolated event. Actually, natural cross-species transmission of viruses uh, in the wildlife um, happens relatively frequent, so we don't need to add complexity to a relatively simple question. There's many other theories, and one of them I find very interesting is the uh, infection uh, campaign with a K, it's from the Russians. So that was in 1983, and actually was published in 1985 as a way to uh, kind of like the, the Soviet Union uh, had this document written, uh, written um, with three retired scientists that no one has ever heard about, uh, describing how the US prepared uh, a back at AIDS vaccine and, and, and kind of thing. Very interesting. Infection, anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on this on these theories. Uh, but then again, in 1992, they came to the public and to the news saying that this was all fake, this was like a way to try to distant um, <coughs> to I don't know, to to kind of mess up with the relationships between the Soviet Union and the US and, um, and they started having like a huge problem with HIV actually in Russia so then things got a bit worse for their side. So, fifth, fifth point here. Well, throughout time, right, in 2005, some uh, group again from uh, Montpellier actually, from Martin Peter's group, Nicole Vidal uh, was a PhD student and then they went again back to the DRC and got more viruses, more samples from other parts of the DRC. Uh, in this case, uh, so we have again Bujimai and, and uh, Kisangani, very close to this company D. Uh, also Lubumbashi, which was the biggest city in the south of the DRC. And they found again what they said, and I'm quoting here, extremely high genetic diversity of HIV-1 uh, strains and uh, heterogeneous geographic distribution. So all this kind of um, blurred a little bit uh, where, because you would expect at the place that HIV or, well, the place where HIV one group M emerged, you would expect it to have the highest diversity in comparison to all the other locations. But then again, we have like, now we have like a, f a bunch of different places throughout one single country with a very high diversity of HIV. And finally, as I mentioned also in the first slide, 2008, Mike Warby and his colleagues, the one that actually went um, and sampled this virus to refute the OPV theory, uh, was still in Oxford, and he went back and he got like a sample, uh, paraffin embedded lymph node biopsy species obtained in 1960 that was um, forgotten in a, in a university in Kinshasa. And if he managed to sequence little portions, so this is the HIV genome, and in red it is the portions that he sequenced. So he managed to sequence a very little portions of HIV genome, but these very little portions were sufficient 
to provide potentially better estimates of the date of uh, origin of HIV-1 group M and was sufficient uh, for him to uh, put forward the hypothesis that the rise of the cities may have facilitated the initial establishment and their spread of HIV-1. So, 2016, right? Uh, what we know now, and after 6,000 different fecal samples from non-human primates have been tested throughout Central, uh, Central Africa and West Africa, what we know now is that the closer SIVs from Group M, the pandemic, uh, the pandemic image, um, <coughs> what, what I'm calling SIV from chimpanzees from the subspecies Pantrogoditis troglodytes, are these three viruses that jump the species border, or these three viruses, no, there's one virus, they're very similar, these three ones, so that jump the species border to humans, generating then HIV-1 group M. And we think, uh, based on this, all these 6,000 screening of these all thousands of samples, uh, these closest viruses to, SIV, to HIV-1 group M exist in the very southeast corner of Cameroon. Uh, so what we think is that around this area, uh, a hunter got infected with a virus, a SIV virus, and then potentially one of the hypotheses that was put forward is that this, this hunter travelled along the Shanga and the Congo River system up to Kinshasa, where the epidemic might have left spawn. Um, so that was one of the hypotheses. Uh, and then generating the diversity that we see today. So we have Terra 59, very early sequence, all the different subtypes, and the DRC sequence, again, very distant from each other, indicating that we share a common ancestor many, many years ago. Um, so we also know that subtype B, as I mentioned, very frequent in Americas, Europe, and Oceania, although it only causes one, uh, 11% of the global infection, really. It's not very, very uh, prevalent worldwide. However, subtype C, on the other hand, that's the, the lineage that, um, that is more prevalent worldwide, especially in Southern Africa, uh, and it causes around half of the infections in the world. In Southern Africa itself, it causes around uh, over two-thirds of all the infections. So the questions that we had, um, well, we wanted to test um, the hypothesis and the questions we had, uh, we wanted to test first the geographic, explicitly uh, the geographic origins of HIV-1 uh, and try to resolve some inconsistencies in the methodologies of previous dating estimates. So we wanted to test explicitly by having sequence data from all these areas. Uh, we wanted to try to find the statistical support uh, for one or the other being at the origin of group M. Uh, we wanted to try to understand how HIV spread outside its epidemic center to generate the pandemic we see today. And then, as I mentioned, there was group O, which we call um, the non-pandemic strain, which caused around 10,000 infections right in Cameroon and in some other places, um, and it never really took off. And we wanted to compare the dynamics, the population dynamics of group M, the pandemic group, and the non-pandemic group, uh, in order to try to have some uh, additional insight in the factors that might have determined HIV pandemic, HIV group one pandemic. There's only one slide about methods, and this is this one. Um, but I'm not going to um, go too much into detail on this. But we use we use sort of a method um, called Bayesian phylogeography, uh, which is 
I've done a bit of my, bit of my PhD on these methods. So we call this uh, phylogeography because it combines phylogenies with geography, right? Uh, and for this, for example, so we get samples from different locations. In this case, it's just an illustration, uh, different regions or different countries. We have four different uh, traits locations, discrete locations there. And we model this as continuous time Markov chain model, where, where we try to really estimate the probabilities of the virus through time, uh, jumping from location A to location B, location C, and location D, and so on and so forth. So based on sequence data, we try to reconstruct these matrices and then um, through time, and then we can then have an overall estimation of the spatial temporal, let's say, dynamics of this uh, uh, virus transmission process. Uh, so if we have a phylogeny, a phylogenetic tree, and if the phylogeny is scaled in time units, uh, what we can do then is we put this information, we know that the sequence was sampled in locations, let's say C, A, B, and so on and so forth. So what we try to do is we try to reconstruct the most probable location in each of these colors is a location. So we try to reconstruct most probable location uh, throughout the entire phylogeny up until the root. So the root is you know, to try to address where did this epidemic come from. And then we have like sort of a, a distribution of probabilities, and in this case, for example, indicating that this particular pathogen emerged with, let's say, 99% of support in a particular location, and in this case, it would be location C. Since we have uh, time-calibrated trees, we can also identify simultaneously when and where this pathogen um, emerged. So we're not only looking into space, but we're also looking into time. And then we have, like, on top of this, what we call robust counting. So we follow, like, branch by branch of this tree. Uh, we, for example, let's say we follow uh, this branch here. So we can then use this method called robust counting, where we have, for example, uh, so the pathogen is here in location C. Here it jumps around this period in time. It jumps to location A. And then again, uh, after a bit, it jumps to location B. So we can trace these jumps, what we call uh, counts, through time again for specific set of locations. Um, so, all right. So in terms of data, the data that we've used, well, it was in collaboration with a few people that work in the field. So we first did a preliminary analysis with. Uh, 814 sequences from 814 different patients uh, from the DRC but also from other locations in the Congo River Basin. So we really took all the data that is available there um, to try to provide a, a very first preliminary question. Did the virus uh, emerge in the DRC or outside the DRC? Um, there were some suggestions, for example, that diversity in Cameroon was also really high, and we wanted to exclude the hypothesis that uh, the virus was actually emerging from there. Um, and this is sort of like um, a final geographic tree again, calibrated in time units, and again the colors correspond to most probable locations. And what we found with very maximum support again, is that the virus emerged in the DRC and not in other Congo River Basin locations. Um, so this was sort of like the preliminary analysis that kept us like going, oh, okay, so we know now that it emerged in the DRC, but where in the DRC? So the next step was then to uh, 
focus only in the DRC. And we also, so we had sequence data from these locations here, the Bumbashi, Ikasi, uh, Bujimai, so all of these part of the Katanga mining region, probably some of you will know better than me uh, a little bit, a bit more history about this area, but it's very interesting. Uh, Kisangani, Bamana in the north, and then Kinshasa, the capital. Uh, we also included data from Brazzaville, which is just six kilometers from Kinshasa on the other side of the river, uh, in the Republic of Congo, capital of the Republic of Congo, and Kwakumar, the second biggest city of the Republic of Congo. So then, a bit, a bit more technical, we prepared like four different data sets, um, and the, the difference in these data sets is that one of them, the original one, had a lot of data from Kinshasa, uh, which had been uh, you know, sampled quite uh, in a lot of different studies over time, and the other subset had the same number of sequences from Kinshasa, and the second to most heavily sampled locations, like Bujimai and Brazzaville. And then from here, and then from here, we prepared different subsets, data set three and four, where we include subtype C sequences, uh, the most, pro uh, most uh, common lineage in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but also subtype B sequences, uh, 67, and we also included this Zyre 59 sequence as a control sort of in our analysis. Right, and then we run this for months and months and months, literally. Uh, and then we kind of, this is like one of the summary uh, results that we've made. So this is sort of the phylogeographic tree, again, uh, rooted in time units, right, uh, that highlights the spread of HIV from, um, from a location here in red, which is Kinshasa to all the other locations. So if we try to um, quantify the statistical support for a route in Kinshasa compared to all the other locations, we find that with 99% probability across all the different data sets, from 100% to 99%, we obtained like, uh, a replication of the group M pandemic in Kinshasa around the year 1920. Our certain, certain intervals were uh, relatively narrower than previous estimates. We used more updated models, um, coalescent models, we call them, um, but they were estimated around uh, 1909 to 1930. So other things, um, <coughs> other things that this phylogeny tell, tell us uh, is that, well, we were also able to recover, so this particular sequence is the Zara 59 sequence. We did not specify dates or location for the sequence, so we use it as a, a validation point in the analysis. And we find with, in 81% of the reconstructions, we do find uh, that the sequence is validated as being from, uh, inferred from Kinshasa and that it was sampled indeed around uh, 1958, 1959, 1957. So this kind of borrows additional sort of uh, um, strength to the argument that our reconstruction was actually correct. Um, we also find uh, that Sutapi, which uh, was found the one causing the first case in 1981 in uh, the US, and most commonly in Europe as well, uh, comes from Kinshasa, which is there's a lot of um, I can I can go back to this in the in the last slides, but um, there's an interesting story about um, the, uh, the, the about the UN, the United Nations personnel that was teaching after the DRC became independent in 1960 in Kinshasa. There were mainly there were five thousand 
teachers from IAT that were actually based in Kinshasa. These teachers went uh, to Kinshasa between 1961 and 1967, and then they went back to IAT. IAT was a very famous um, uh, tourist destination, sex tourist destination for North Americans, who then might have picked up the virus from there and brought it to the US. Um, anyway, subtype C, on the other hand, uh, has a different origin compared to subtype B. And we find that although, with, albeit with not that strong statistical support, uh, we find that subtype C uh, most likely emerged in the south part of the DFC. So we find that its origins lay more, more likely in, in Bujimai, so the, the capital, the diamond mining capital of the DRC. Um, not too far from Lubumbashi, and this has actually been confirmed in a, some ongoing work that we're doing with other genomic regions and with other data sets. Um, so, if we decide to then to project the tree in space and time, find the virus uh, starting in Kinshasa, spreading to the very south of the DRC, Lubumbashi and Bujimai, and then later on going to Kisangani, Omanda and to other locations uh, potentially in the way. So these are places where we had sequence data from. Uh, but this sort of reconstruction sort of highlights the most important role of Kinshasa in the, um, as the main hub of farm dispersal in the DRC. So if we actually put this into, if we actually decide to quantify um, the frequency of group M lineages in the DRC. So imagine we have that, that phylogeny that I showed you. Um, so imagine that you cut pieces, it's like ear by ear, just do some cuts, right, and then you rotate it. So most of the lineages were first only in Kinshasa, this is the Kinshasa, and then the virus, is, uh, the virus, the viral lineages start spreading, start spreading to three other locations, in this case Brazzaville, which is just around five, 16 minutes from Kinshasa, but also in Bujimai and Bumbashi, and start generating secondary process transmission, uh, and in, indeed, we do find that around 60% of all these migration events, uh, 58, were estimated as farm exportations from Kinshasa. And then we find Brazzaville and uh, Southern DRC as most important secondary FOSA transmission. Um, from Kinshasa, where did these viral migrations, uh, where were they exported to? Well, 72% were exported to Brazzaville and then Lubumbashi and Bujimai. Then we started wondering why. Why, why did we find that most of viral exportations from Kinshasa are always to Brazzaville? Well, Brazzaville makes sense, six kilometers on the other side of the river. But Lubumbashi and Bujimai, so that's, that's kind of when I, I was doing my PhD in Belgium and I just went to these libraries in Brussels, which is the perfect place actually to do that, since Belgium was the former. Um, well, the DRC was colonized by Belgium until the 1960s, so obviously there were a lot of uh, very useful information about the human mobility patterns in the DRC. So I tried to, to get a hold of uh, on this data, and, and I found that, well, uh, if we actually put this into perspective, um, well, there were, up until 1960, uh, around very few, but around like less than 10% of human mobility uh, was done by fluvial networks connecting Kinshasa and mostly to Kinshasa really to the north of the country, Baman and Kisangani. And, but most of uh, uh, human movement was done through these uh, railways. So railways were really important in the, uh, well, in the overall patterns of human mobility in the DRC. 
So if we put on top of this the viral migration patterns, we find that the virus actually followed from Kinshasa to the south of the DRC, probably by railways, and then there is some evidence of bidirectional uh, flow here, and then later on by physical networks to the top of the DRC. Uh, and if we try to quantify when did the virus, when was the virus exported to these other locations, and this is the mean with the 95% uh, Bayesian credible intervals, we find that, for example, from Kinshasa to Brazzaville, the virus was already probably introduced around 1940-1939, with the uncertain intervals uh, suggesting that the virus definitely was present there before 1960-1959, which is the date of the early sample. So perhaps if we go back to certain locations in the DRC, like Lubumbashi, Bujimai, and Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo, we will probably find very old sequences there as well. Uh, and then there was this uh, very interesting book uh, that I came across, uh, and that was a book uh, about the archives of uh, uh, railway and fluvial transportation networks per year, how many passengers. Uh, it was very, very detailed information really there. So around 34 million travels along the DRC up until 1960. So there's a lot, actually, the DRC apparently had the best. Um, uh, transportation system in Central Africa. Uh, the Belgians really did a lot of effort in, in making that possible. 92% of these movements were done through railways and only 8% to fulfill networks. So if we go back to the original question of urbanization being the key driver of HIV emergence, um, and if we plot the population growth in Kinshasa, which is in grey, and if we compare it to the human mobility patterns, uh, which is in blue with efficient number of passengers. The comparison, the simple comparison of this data suggests that the uh, it most most importantly, uh, the fact that there were a lot more people actually uh, traveling the DRC, so these human mobility patterns uh, seem to be more important than urbanization itself in explaining the spread of HIV throughout the country. And then there was uh, this is just some pictures really showing uh, some of these. Trains, 1926, 1938, some boats as well, uh, 1954, uh, and 1952. So this is Kinshasa, aerial view of Kinshasa, railway transportation system. So there were a lot. There was a lot of evidence for. Um, there was well, there were a lot of very good transportation network system in Kinshasa by the time that could have been probably very important for the uh, spread of the virus in the country. So, and then finally, uh, we compared the demographic history of Group M and Group O. Group M, the pandemic, Group O, the non-pandemic. So Group O, the non-pandemic, is shown here in grey, and what this means is the effective population size. Uh, so it's a measure of genetic diversity, relative genetic diversity of the virus through time. And you could potentially correlate this with incidence. So we don't have incidence data, obviously, for, for HIV uh, through time, but using sequence data and coalescent models, we can estimate past uh, demographic histories, which is an approximation of incidence data and can be very useful uh, when comparing incidence data for periods when we don't have incidence data and to look at these trajectories over time. Uh, and in black, what you have here is the population of Kinshasa through time. Um, so, 
in the very early phase of the epidemics of group M, which is in red here, the virus, and this, this is the mean, and these are the uncertain intervals. Uh, so in the very early phase of the epidemic, the virus seems to follow, you, uh, well, it seems to follow um, urbanization patterns, right, uh, in the very early stage of the epidemic, but then there is something happening, and that's the same for group M and group O, and then there's something happening that is only typical for group M, but not for group O, around what we estimate to be around this particular period here, around 1960, that then explains that group O uh, sort of transition from this early period of relatively slow exponential growth, this is an argument, to a super fast, what we call a super exponential growth in 1960. The uncertainty was again 1952 to 1968. So something happened for group O, or sorry, for group M, that did not happen for group O, that potentially explained why group M took, took over and caused 99% you know, of all infections while group O remained the non-pandemic age and doesn't affect that many people. Um, so then we quantified, well, we quantified, we started looking for, uh, there's four different hypotheses that we looked at, um, and we started quantifying first, so how fast did it grow? Well, group M in the early period before 1960, so these are sort of the growth rates, um, well, uh, transmitted overall in the population at a similar pace as group O as well through time, and also was very similar to the population growth in Kinshasa. On, on the other hand, the group, M, uh, cost, uh, the group M growth rates actually tripled in the second phase of the epidemic. And there's four potential explanations for this. Right. One of them is the biological explanation. Right. So something happened in 1960, uh, for example, the acquisition of a functional group uh, MVPU, which is one of the proteins, uh, to counteract the steroid antagonism. So something in the virus itself uh, adapted uh, to become more transmissible, uh, to be more, to be with brother, that could explain this, uh, that the growth rates tripled after 1960 for group M virus. Although this has been an hypothesis that this kind of dividing people in, in academia really, uh, we think personally that it doesn't make sense. Because so if you imagine the phylogeny that we had, that I've shown you a while ago, right? So if you put a line in 1960, what it pretty much saying is that all these viruses that already exist in 1960 should convergently acquire a specific mutation that kind of gives them uh, more transmissibility in comparison to the, to the viruses before 1960. So that is sort of the argument of convergent evolution doesn't really make sense from an evolutionary perspective. So, second hypothesis is that, well, it might have been, well, the fact that we see this super exponential growth program might simply be a consequence of geographic expansion in Kinshasa and then the establishment of the secondary for self-transmission or the new superpopulations outside of Kinshasa. So it might just be an artifact of population structure, what we call the population structure. In order to tackle that, we went back to our phylogeny imagine all those lineages in red, which would correspond to Kinshasa, and we reanalyzed all the data just keeping those lineages in red and excluding all the other ones. So we've, and we found the same pattern. So we found, again, something that was unique to Kinshasa and didn't happen in other, if we considered other locations, showing that the virus, um, <coughs> showing the same pattern and showing that if something happened 
uh, to explain these, you know, this tripling of the growth rates around 1960, that's something probably happened in Kinshasa as well. So we, can, we could then fine-tune a little bit more our research in trying to identify possible reasons. And then we were left with two hypotheses that we cannot really favor one or the other, but these two hypotheses are a bit different than the other ones because these two hypotheses are focused on social factors uh, rather than biological factors um, to explain the emergence of Kupem. Uh, so one thing, well in 1960 the DRC became independent, uh, 30 June 1960 from Belgium. And uh, some previous work from Jacques Pepin, he has a very interesting book also about theoreticians of AIDS in Cambridge University Press. Uh, and he was actually co-author in this paper, which helped a lot. Uh, and anyway, so Jacques Pepin has been, has been doing like a, a lot of historical work in the DRC. And what, one thing that they've noticed is that there were uh, changes after 1960 uh, in uh, commercial sex work behavior. There were many more bars opening after 1960, for example, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, um, there's very interesting uh, and, and sort of convincing data, really, that vaccination campaigns uh, in Kinshasa, but also in other places around Kinshasa, may have contributed to fuel the transmission of the virus in this particular time window. So we know that there were a few vaccination campaigns happening. It's not that the, the vaccine was contaminated, but rather the use of unsterile needles might have then contributed to the propagation of the virus from one infected person to many others, which could explain why uh, birth rates tripled around 1960. So we are left with these two hypotheses that we cannot really, really exclude. And one thing interesting is that there's some data from um, some clinics in Kinshasa and all the commercial sex workers were actually sort of tagged and they had to go there, they were tested uh, in the Belgium form of Belgium system. So they were receiving uh, at least the number of visits from commercial sex workers, around 30,000 in 1950-1955, which is a lot, and number of injections. So each of these commercial sex workers was actually receiving many, many injections on each visit, for sometimes for things that they you know, didn't foresee this, for example, they were just receiving the wrong injections because there was not really a proper cure at the time. Um, so people think that this could actually have been quite important in the spread, um, in, the, in the increase of HIV transmissions around this period. So kind of in summary, um, what we kind of showed is that Kupam spatial origins were in Kinshasa around the 1920s. Uh, Kinshasa has acted as the main hub of early spread uh, this was sort of validated using this Zara 59 sequence. I haven't talked talk too much about this, but we used like the stringent model selection approach, and all these inferences were robust to different sampling schemes. Uh, and this sort of like a graphical representation, so we have an origin of the virus, mostly confined to Kinshasa, but then it starts spreading to other locations and generating each color it corresponds to subtype and generating the subtypes that we see today. Subtype B originated in Kinshasa, potentially a connection with um, the connection with uh, um, the US is that people, well, teachers from IT might actually have taken the virus uh, back to IT and from there the virus reached the US and then reached the rest of uh, the Western world. While subtype C origins uh, are most likely in the south mining region of Kinshasa and then the virus might have spread through this copper belt 
corridor. Um, we find uh, that spatial expansion in Africa potentially was contingent upon this dynamic transportation network, but not urbanization and not biological factors. Uh, that, and this transportation network connected the DRC to other sub-Saharan sub locations. And then finally, like this three-fold increase in the growth rates around 1960, uh, adds evidence that social factors potentially uh, post-1950 unsterile injections and changes in sexual behavior had uh, a iatrogenic component on this. Um, and when we published this, this was in October 2014, and since then uh, there's been a paper actually uh, showing that this iatrogenic component was actually quite strong. Well, other viruses, like HCV virus, doesn't spread sexually as HIV does, right? So HCV, uh, Jack Pupin and his team went back to the DRC um, and collected a lot of different samples from um, older people, uh, like 70, 80 years old people in the DRC, uh, and they kind of had a track of all their medical records, the number of injections, when they received the injections, in which hospitals they received these injections, and they were able to sample the virus, to, to sample, to isolate and to sequence these viruses, HCV virus, because it's a chronic infection, uh, and, and they were able to do that. Anyway, so there's different subtypes occurring in the DRC, and what they find, and this is the year of exponential growth phase, when it starts, <coughs> and year of the exponential growth phase when it ends. So HCV, they find very similar findings for our, according to our HIV paper, and uh, the transition time that we estimate in 1960, they find that it also, 1960, it's also consistent with the HCV scenario, and then the uh, exponential growth phase, in their case, also ends around 1980s. So there's this window of opportunity, really, uh, that allows, that allows potentially HIV and HIV to be spread in the same way. So finally, 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 okay, human mobility has an impact in the spread of infectious diseases. Well, that sounds very reasonable, right? Um, and so what? So what's next? Right? So one thing, one thing that I'm now particularly interested is, well, we know that HIV spread from the DRC and then spread into multiple lineages. These lineages generated different subtypes, uh, and each of the subtypes has a different pattern of transmission around the world. I'm particularly interested right now on this, what we call to be subtype G. And why? Well, because subtype, subtype G is unique. It's unique in the sense, well, it's in Portugal. This is, in, this is Portuguese data. Uh, and subtype G is unique in the sense that while subtype B was introduced so many different times into different countries, uh, it's very difficult to find one single virus population. So instead you have each introduction corresponds to you know, one virus population. So if you want to properly analyze that, you have to separate each viral population, which is interesting because you then can compare them, but you also lose a lot of resolution and a lot of power in your inferences. However, subtype so G, and this is a compilation of 2,399 sequences from all over the world, uh, subtype G in Portugal specifically forms a very strong monophyletic clade. And what is a monophyletic clade? It's when you have one single virus introduction into a country, and all this is Portugal, and then subsequent spread of the virus in that particular country. And the interesting thing is that we date this introduction around 1970s, and we had in Portugal 
uh, we had the Ultramar colonial war, right, held in, in, uh, in Angola, in Guinea-Bissau, and a bit less, but still in Mozambique. Uh, so we find that this introduction in Portugal happened at a similar time as the colonial war, potentially with the return of soldiers from, uh, you know, from Central Africa. And we not only find that for Portugal, but interestingly, we find that for Cuba and for Russia. So it's, we're also fighting in the same war. So there seems to be some evidence that war has obviously had an impact on the international spread of satellite chief. So the other thing um, that I'm interested, besides, I can't see that well here, it's a pity. So what we're trying now to do is to pick up, so this, this is sequences from, so each of these uh, tips is colored by non-Portugal, and the uh, uh, green is Portugal sequences. So most of these sequences form a cluster, like I was mentioning, a monoclastic cluster from Portugal. And then this is the background, is colored by transmission risk group. So IPU means intravenous drug user, MSM means uh, manual sex with man, and heterosexual, heterosexual means heterosexual, right? So what we're trying to do now uh, is then to, to test different hypotheses of what is the best predictor of fire spread. So each of these sequences comes from 45 different hospitals. So there's around 1,801 sequences from Portugal. So we know the hospitals where the patients have uh, been sampled, or we know the district as well. So, and we also have uh, human mobility data. So you can't see very well here, but this is a net what this is the uh, human mobility high resolution uh, network compiled from one million, over one million anonymized cell phone users in the country that were followed for a period of one year, right? So we have very high resolution spatial data and we can then test hypothesis explicitly what are the drivers of our spread. And we do find that uh, cell phone data is the best predictor of HIV movement in within a single country. So based on that, right, so that's the part that I'm particularly interested. So we have data only from these locations here in red. So very, actually data from 15 municipalities in Portugal. So and based on this, what we can now try to do is to extrapolate this information based on the cell phone mobility patterns. We can extrapolate information from these 15 municipalities to the 276 municipalities in all the country and identify uh, the very high resolution, uh, the hotspots of virus transmission. And this is not only applicable to HIV, but it's also uh, being done for Ebola, for example, and for uh, HIV in Southern Africa, which is going to be my trip uh, next month, and uh, one month in South Africa to work on this. So anyway, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Alexander, for the invitation. And uh, thank you very much to you. And uh, I'm happy to hear any questions.